Welcome to The Laundry, the podcast connecting AML, compliance, and financial crime to the real world. I'm your host, Marit, and in this episode, we are asking, what is a PEP anyway? If you've picked up a British newspaper, switched on the TV, logged on to social media, or attended a political party conference this year, there is one word you will have come across again and again. Debanked. Over a million people have been debanked in recent years. Debanking isn't always about people's views. Some banks use third-party companies to compile risk assessments for them. The regulations are wrong. We brought in politically exposed persons regulations and money laundering regulations to try and deal with the kind of Don Corleone characters, not yeah. to try and deal with Nigel Farage. They denied to me on the phone on Friday that I was a pep, a politically exposed person. That's the reason nobody else will have me. You could be a convicted murderer and not lose your bank account. There are terrorists who have bank accounts, for goodness sake. They say he's not a politically exposed person, but then they say in the documentation that he is. Look, this is not only sinister, it's abjectly political. The FCA is telling us there's no evidence of banks using political reasons to debank high-profile people. Does Prince Andrew still have an account with you, Coots? In fact, if Nigel Farage could bank all of the attention he's getting now, there's no way they'd have closed his account. Money makes British politicians and media figures are in uproar about bank accounts being shut down or applications being rejected, reportedly due to political connections and beliefs. The term politically exposed persons, previously only known to compliance nerds, has suddenly become a mainstream talking point. The decisions behind the scenes in financial institutions are being exposed for all to see, and we've seen some high-profile resignations because of it. So, in today's episode, we are asking, what is a politically exposed person in 2023? Should political views matter? And why is it so important to get it right? To dive into this topic, I'm joined by James Nurse, Managing Director at Fintrail, and Phil Cool, MRLO and Head of Compliance at Oak North Bank. And you are back for the second time, James. It's my second star, yeah. I'm very excited to be here. Just to remind our listeners, what should they know about you and Fintra? Oh, well, we're a financial crime or anti-financial crime consultancy. We predominantly help kind of the payment space, fintechs, you know, crypto firms, um, EMIs uh, across the world with whatever they need from a AML compliance perspective or financial crime risk management perspective. And how did you become a AML compliance nerd? Well, I started out in the the terrible world of gambling or online gambling, not me personally, but working for online gambling operators. So I kind of, that was my entry route into the world of compliance and fraud and financial crime. So, and then finally moved into the, the kind of more difficult world of financial services. <laughs> and you, Phil, what should people know about uh, you and Oak North? So I've been in anti-financial crime for about 13 years. Uh, I started my life at the, what was then the FSA, now the FCA. I uh, spent some time at Lloyd's and Investec and, as you referenced, more, most recently at Oak North, where, where I am the MLRO. Um, Oak North is, for those who don't know, a lending and savings bank uh, in the UK. And our reason to be is to help the, the missing middle with their lending challenges. So with your background in the FCA, it should be interesting to dig into the FCA report well. a bit later on <laughs> into the episode. We shall see. But I can assume that the, the term PEP and the conversations around it have, has changed in the last 13 years. But what if we just start off with what is the best definition of a PEP in 2023? I mean, you could dive into the regs and, and get the definition if, if you so wish. But I think the easiest way to think about it is that a PEP is somebody 
in a privileged governmental position with a influence and b the opportunity and let's say the the know-how and the contacts and the feasibility to access a certain level of funds so i think it's those two things it's an influence point and an access to funds point do you agree with this yeah definitely it's basically an individual who's has a prominent place of power in the in the that has control over kind of who could possibly have control over individuals state-owned or or certain specific so yes pretty much uh you know you nailed it nailed it and why should banks and fintechs care about peps like what makes this so interesting (laughs) interesting is an interesting word to use um i mean look banks and, and the financial industry and all the regulated sector are interested because it's been such a key part of the reg since 2007. So that's when they first came in. The focus. So you've been through the entire transition then with uh, 13 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when when I started working in FinCrime, there was a real focus on PEPs. And particularly when I was at the FSA and FCA then, every visit we did, we looked at PEPs. It was an easy thing to look at. Uh, the, the regs from 2007 had been in for a while from that point. So firms had a bit of time to get with the program so to speak and yeah it was it was really the the focus of most visits that we did it has changed since then though it was very much a foreign focused regime to begin with in 2007 and then in 2017 it shifted uh, to include domestic as well although actually i think interesting by then and james you can comment on this i think most firms had already started to include domestic peps in their arrangements before 2017 so that's been the major shift in more recent years but it has been a theme for a long time and you know the requirements have stayed pretty much the same which has been helpful but yeah it's an important part of the framework yeah definitely and i think as you said how it's progressed a little bit is you know originally an international basis and then we've got this the principle of a lower risk and higher risk pep which is ultimately whether it's a local pep or an international pep and you know we're, we're certainly going through the motions again in terms of what is a PEP, as you asked the questions at the beginning. and But I think going back to the, the basics, I think when we're thinking about specific financial crime-related issues towards PEPs, it's um, it's about corruption, I think, is the, the main kind of basis of a lot of the, the, the original concerns around PEPs. And unfortunately, some of those legacy concerns have continued on and uh, whether they're fit for purpose for certain circumstances, I guess, is one of the things that are in question at the moment. Do you think uh, fintechs care as much about PEPs as banks do, or? Are fintechs and banks equally interested in in this? I mean, I'd like to hope so, given it's a part of the law. As I said, it's a real it's a real key focus of every regulatory interaction. So I'd I'd be very wary if I was a fintech and I didn't have the right focus and framework around PEPs and PEP risk, because there's actually quite it's it's pretty prescriptive what you need to do for PEPs. It's it's not as grey as some other areas. So it's relatively easy, I would say, to engage with in terms of what you need to do. So, yeah, if you are a fintech out there who has not implemented anything to do with PEPs, I would start doing that pretty quick. Yeah, you're right. I think the uh, whilst we, we love a risk-based approach, I think and the principle of risk-based pro- approach being enabling you to be a bit more flexible and take your own measures, um, I think, ironically, the, the PEP is a, um, situation is a bit more prescripted in the sense that you know, what you need to do as a pep, you just have to, they're saying they're taking a risk-based approach, but ultimately this is what you need to do within a risk-based approach. There's less room for interpretation, as you as you mentioned there. Do you think the fintech community is, is as exposed to peps as the traditional banks? 
I think, um, you know, if we look at what fintech has done, it's taken various different components of a bank and broken it down into a, an individual product, potentially, or multiple products. So in terms of the exposure, in principle, it should be the same because the product set are, you know, they're trying to do similar things. Obviously, um, there is an argument that certain facilities that PEPs use, I mean, Coots is an example, which I'm sure we'll come on to at some point. Uh, those particular organizations are very much kind of aimed at more higher net worth individuals themselves. So um, ultimately, I think there's a few less fintechs that are necessarily kind of primed, particularly at certain markets. So um, I guess, uh, yeah, different fintechs are going to have different exposure, mainly due to what they offer, the clients they chase, but which is no different to certain financial institutions that are more we view as more traditional. So on the topic of PEPs, and especially today, because, you know, the Nigel Farage scandal was again in the media, we can't avoid uh, avoid this topic. Uh, so... I think we should just kind of recap the UK debanking scandal. So what are your thoughts on, on this? Was it like a pep scandal or? No, I don't, I don't think it was personally. I'm not even sure it's a, a scandal, but um, <laughs> there you are. It's, you know, Nigel Farage has made a, a big deal about having his, uh, his account closed by Coots um, for, for reasons which he believed were kind of anti-financial inclusiveness, I guess, and, and were based on his political leanings as opposed to based on on more fundamental reasons as to why a bank would close any relationship, which I think on the one hand is is very fair to call out. But is it the wide ranging issue that is being claimed? I'm not sure I'd, I'd personally agree with that. There is an issue around the industry with financial inclusivity, and that's that's been well known for a number of years to make sure certain populations around the country and around the globe are, are properly banked. But I don't think there was a issue that was there that banks were making just blind decisions to close out politically leaning accounts. I don't know if that's your experience, James. Well, there's an element of frustration, I think, in the industry uh, because obviously the debanked population is very well documented and that we need to do more to kind of be more inclusive. And I think there's quite a lot of frustration that... Um, Ultimately, an individual with power was able to obviously use their kind of um, public profile to, I guess, push an agenda um, for something they wanted. So I think there was quite a lot of frustration from people that I've spoken to that suddenly we're having to run around, look at peps again when there's so many other things kind of uh, on the agenda that could potentially be more important um, that, to, to consider at the same time. So, yeah, it wasn't necessarily a, a scandal, as you said. And I think if we unpick some of the kind of piece that came out from NatWest today on the independent review i think there's definitely bits where they 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 didn't didn't do everything correctly but i think from the sound of things from this independent review it was certainly wasn't a scandal and the actual exit itself was well whilst ha not handled correctly the actual kind of exit itself was to do with commercial decisions uh, not necessary to do with the fact that they were a, a, he was a pep in himself anyway is there anything that nat west did you think was particularly poor that firms should kind of hook into to make sure they don't make the same mistakes? I mean, I'm not convinced that they needed to kind of give the specific exit document as part of the subject um, access request. Uh, so I guess the subject access request for people that are not aware of what it is, anyone could basically go to a company or a financial institution, request a subject access request. And then in theory, that particular business is meant to be able to provide all correspondence or notes that's on that particular individual bar, certain bits that may be more sensitive to do with potentially financial crime. Obviously, this one was a bit more in the middle, but uh, 
yeah, it was a, it was an interesting one in terms of whether they needed to disclose all of the information on that one. Um, but it made an interesting read if you've read it. And if you haven't, I would definitely encourage you to go read it. What are the highlights for those who haven't read the documents in depth like you have? Well, I think it, the interesting bit was I think that they... The compliance or financial crime compliance, if I remember rightly, their their general opinion was that it didn't warrant an exit, if I remember rightly. And then it went to the uh, the reputation committee and uh, uh, who subsequently made an overarching decision based on a few factors, apparently, to, uh, to ultimately exit the account. Allegedly, they offered him another account. And I think that's a really big thing to kind of point out. There's lots of peps and pe- politicians saying it's not fair being unbanked. These PEPs are not unbanked. They have multiple accounts in multiple jurisdictions uh, for various tax efficiency reasons. Uh, So they certainly have accounts. uh, Just because they don't have one account closed does not mean they don't have another account somewhere else. You should assume they have... Nigel Farage had more than this one bank account. I think he had his assets spread across a few different places, yes. But it kind of gets to the question, like, should political views even matter in... In the world of peps, so ultimately, no is the is the main point. But I think uh, there's a you know a right for free speech in the UK as arises in a lot of different countries. But uh, there is a fine line um, between, I guess hate um, um, kind of speech and certain things that mean the right for free speech is not allowed. And this particular scenario, you know, does not necessarily cover that. So uh, I think certainly, you know, political views, you know, the right for free speech should be allowed. And I don't think it necessarily should have an effect, is my personal opinion. Like, uh, um, but I'd be keen to see what you yeah, think. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would just say that there's obviously extremes of political views and an extremist view can be be a marker of something else and I think firms need to be aware that whilst you you shouldn't make decisions on a person's political leaning you should take that into account as a possible risk factor if you believe that view to be particularly extreme so if we are going to the ends of the right or the left what else might that mean about that person do you need to do any further digging what does that mean in terms of their network and associations and you know firms need to have that thought process a little bit as well i'm not saying that you should investigate everyone's political view but in some situations it could be a marker for the you know some sort of risk I think some of those political views creep in towards where there was concerns towards more wider financial crime activity mm. and things like that. So I think one of the points on the Nigel Farage bit and, um, and Coots was that they had concerns to, to, of his Russian uh, connections at the time. So I think that was one of, so I guess leaning into what you're saying, 100% there's ex- extremist situations which should be taken into account where, you know, the political view can be one thing, but where it creeps towards something that might be a little bit more sinister um, with evidence, obviously, <laughs> that's where, you know, there's considerations for how that profile and that risk activity kind of uh, needs to be considered. These events, have they changed in any way how you guys at Oak North uh, work with PEP or your risk controls or your policies? No, not one bit. But I would say that because, you know, I think, <laughs> I think we've got a pretty, uh, I think we've got a pretty strong framework around PEPs and PEP risk. So no, this hasn't caused us to review what we do in any respect. What I would say is that as we're seeing now with the consultation on the regs at the moment as well and and what's going or what's possibly coming into the regs in relation to PEPs is that there's a further push to do less on domestic exposure. And so, you know, firms need to be aware around how they deal with domestic PEPs. 
and that they don't fall foul of, of the guidance that the regs is going to bring in and that the FCA are going to bring in in due course as well. So, you know, I think at Oak North, we've, we've been relatively good at front running a lot of that stuff. But if, if firms haven't got a proper approach to domestic risk yet, um, I would suggest that's the best thing for, for firms to look at from here on in. It makes a world go Can't get enough of the laundry? Not only are we giving you a weekly podcast dishing out insights and learnings on the biggest topics in AML and compliance, but now we have our very own newsletter. Fresh Laundry with me, Marit, is a place for hot takes, looks behind the scenes on the latest episodes and the best recommendations in news, articles, podcasts and more. Find the link in the episode description. Let's clean up your inbox with some fresh laundry. I think we should go on to talk about this, uh, you know, the FCA report. We talked about it a little bit before the podcast uh, started uh, recording. I don't know, James, maybe you would want to give us like an overview of what has happened uh, here. Sure. So we had a lot of noise from Nigel Farage. Um, subsequently, obviously, there was an investigation. Um, the the NatWest person quit because of uh, apparent leaks. Uh, then um, Jeremy Hunt, the chancellor, subsequently wrote a strongly worded kind of letter to um, the FCA um, to look into this particular situation. Lo and behold, we then um, kind of distribute a um, a re- review or a data collection exercise with the FCA to, for I think it was. Banks and building societies only, and I'm, I'm seeing nods yeah. from Bill, so that's, that's like, yeah. Uh, so not everyone in the market, um, but they had three weeks or something um, absolutely ludicrous to provide specific information and data on um, all account closures. So this was, I think, the key bit is it wasn't just um, PEPs, it wasn't just. Uh, Um, individuals who may have been closed for political views. Um, it was for a variety of reasons, which which is probably a good exercise to do, but it did seem a little rushed and prompted by the current situation that happened. Um, obviously, we then got a report back, which um, called out loads of limitations from the review due to the timeframes in which it was collected and a load of additional actions that we need to do more to find out kind of extra information about the count closures. I guess the key bit out of that was that uh, uh, the report stated that no account had been closed uh, for individuals with political views. So uh, I think we discussed the po- before the podcast, and I think many kind of companies have a specific drop down on their exit uh, or closure kind of uh, um, admin platforms to say close for political views. So uh, um, it doesn't really come as a surprise that there wasn't there. So uh, um, yeah, more to be done there. And then we've got the, the, I mean, I don't know if we're going to talk about it in a minute, but the uh, we've got the subsequent FCA PEP review that's happening over the next 12 months, I think, as well, Phil? Yeah, that's right. You know, some more FCA work in in the PEP space to see and ensure that firms are doing the right stuff. Uh, I mean, they've been over this before. Um, it's comes out yeah, in, like when you when you yeah, when you started I mean, it out just, it seems full I just circle thought it was good i thought the pep <laughs> stuff was probably one of the one of the best things the s has ever done it's the most useful guidance they've got yeah i agree but you know there seems to be this view that peps are still managed badly in the industry do you think it is so or no i don't i think the fin crime element of peps is broadly being managed quite well in fact and what's obviously pushed a lot of this is a lot of banks are managing it too well because they're asking too many questions of peps and people related to peps like rcas relatives and close associates and people linked to peps so yeah i think the fin crime element of it has been managed relatively well although i'm sure there's some pockets where it isn't But now we're into sort of the reputational element of PEPs and what 
what that risk being, brings, um, which also links to consumer duty and, and some other pieces that the FCA are really focused on right now. So, yeah, it's peps, but with a different angle. Is this new angle making it more difficult for already, you know, uh, there's a lot of workload on compliance teams in banks. Is this adding to it? Difficult to say because depends on what your PEP exposure is like, really. If you've got a pretty heavy PEP exposure, then it probably is adding a bit of extra reputational concern, you know, and, and maybe more work will have to be done in, in those banks to make sure that all decisions made around these accounts are tickety-boo, so to speak. Um, so, yeah, it's probably not increasing sort of due diligence levels and that sort of operational stuff, but the kind of, let's say, the softer side of pet management, I think, is probably increasing. There's potentially a positive outcome that comes out of this in the sense that if if we're declassification the, the principle of PEPs from a local perspective even more or classifying them, but maybe um, I think the principle at the moment is you take um, more intrusive steps for high-risk PEPs or international PEPs and you take less intrusive steps for um, kind of lower-risk PEPs, which basically means for high-risk PEPs, you need to collect source of funds, source of wealth, uh, whereas for um, lower-risk PEPs, you can maybe do some open-source search to understand that, you know, the nature of that relationship and their wealth um, without actually contacting them. But um, what it may mean, we don't even need to kind of uh, even look for those lower risk PEPs at all. So from an operational burden, um, it may mean screening and and like um, the amount of alerts that get triggered on boarding for um, kind of um, PEPs uh, as, rather than just sanctions and adverse media and all the other kind of categories that you look at may be, you know, significantly reduced if they're, they're not needing to look at them at all. So, uh, you know, that might be a, an operational positive output from it. So around the like lunch table at Oak North, with uh, you're there, you're there with the team who also all like, of us sit at our desk for lunch, <laughs> you know. lunch boxes. <laughs> <laughs> But okay, and then the team who kind of uh, you know manages pep risk or do due diligence, you know, what is the kind of conversation that goes on at lunch at Oak North, evolving peps and managing pep risks? It's it's actually not really much of a conversation topic, I have to say. Maybe because. We're not as exposed as some other places, but it's, you know, as I was referring earlier on, it's it's a framework which is ticking over okay. And 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 unless we get exposed to some sort of significant pep risk somewhere, probably more likely in our in our lending book, you know, there's not much for us to do on it. Um and there's not much cause for concern. So yeah, we've we focus on a number of other things actually. Not not so much pep risk at all. So in the sort of um, big headaches of compliance, all the stuff that needs to be managed, there's sanctions, there's peps, like higher risk industry, all these things. Like where would you rank peps at the moment for you guys? Well, the middling to bottom, I would say. I mean, it's it's never going to be at the bottom of the pile because there are some, you know, as we've said, some stringent regs around it. But, you know, from a business perspective, we've got other priorities. And I think from a risk perspective, we do as well. So, you know, we've got to prioritize what we think are the key things to to look at and focus on because we've, we've all got limited resource, right? Definitely. Uh, what are the some of the tips you would give to other compliance officers in terms of managing the PEP risks? One of the, some actionable insights. Um, I would make sure that you've got a appropriate and reasonable specific risk assessment for PEPs themselves and really understand the nuance between a direct PEP relationship with the individual and a non-direct, i.e. through a corporate, and what that means, whether they're a director or a UBO or someone else. I think a lot of firms have 
just applied pep controls across the peps, you know, no matter where they face you in the business. So uh, that sort of approach is is absolutely needed. Probably, I mean, if you haven't got pep training sort of sloshed around in your AML stuff with your front office guys and your CDD guys, I'd make sure that that's up to scratch. And, and also an understanding, probably through that training piece, actually, that peps can pose risk in different ways. It's probably linked to that first point around through corporates as well and, and through linked relationships because there's this piece around sort of pep influence or even people who slightly fall outside of the pep definition who still have political influence like, you know, local councillors and people of that ilk who, are, who can't be classified as peps because that's what the FCA has told us in terms of guidance but still pose a local influence risk and can expose you to bribery and corruption and that type of thing. So you've got to be aware of what your business is and how you might be exposed to PEPs through that type of business and the deals you do and the products that you offer. So it's really, conclusion, focus it on your business and what your business does and how you could be exposed as opposed to just applying a blanket PEP approach. It's pretty good. I think I agree. I should I mean, be a that, consultant. You should James. be. Welcome to Finn. Welcome to Finn. You start on Monday. Uh, but yeah, definitely. I mean, that blanket approach is so right, uh, particularly in the corporate world. I think so many people are reaching out to potential peps on like, uh, you know, you're onboarding a, a massive kind of company and then you're reaching out to like an individual who's like uh, on the board or something for a source of, source of funds and source of wealth documentation when it's completely unnecessary because there's not actually any financial kind of um, wealth of their, their own going through those particular organisations. So I think definitely kind of, uh, you know, thinking about your individual risk exposure will help you from a, an, an efficiency perspective as well. You'll, you'll be doing less if you actually understand it and doing it properly. I think one of the things they mentioned on the the, uh, the NatWest Independent Review today was um, making sure you're doing regular reviews of your PEP kind of register as well and considering declassification, which is, you know, super important. We talked about a little bit before about once a PEP, always a PEP. Principally, that is just is not correct anymore um but clearly there is always some kind of um risks that continue after maybe a pep is no longer in kind of in service as it were so but clearly you can declassify them which you know reduces your profile risk you, you may not need to do the same things that you need to do anymore which was again the case with this nigel Farageron. they uh didn't actually need to classify him as a pep. He could have been declassified ages ago. It probably wouldn't have affected the commercial decision that they're leaning on to get rid of him. Um, but they did say that he probably would still have been classified as high risk anyway, just because of the nature of his kind of um, profile position in the public. But yeah, this uh, all, once a pep, always a pep. It's because uh, some data providers and they still classify people who was a pep 10 years ago and they still pop up as a pep. So I think it's important for financial institutions to actually review the like technology providers here as well because you can have a lot of false positives yeah definitely i think the, the one of the things you have to remember is with pep lists they are um not the same as a sanctions list or maybe an enforcement list in the sense that uh they're not a um they haven't got 250 records on them it's like open source search kind of uh collected by um whatever company that you, you use as an individual so they are vast it's not dissimilar to you know how they collect adverse media kind of information but albeit maybe a little bit more simpler so having old records on there that maybe peps that are no longer actually peps does happen and uh you know so making sure you check and challenge don't just take your your screening providers like data for you know gospel as it were what's the real world consequence of getting you know peps wrong at a bank well we have to do a massive report on data collection by the <laughs> fca <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true we do have to do that what is the real world risk so 
I mean, I guess if you if you don't have a appropriate PEP framework in place, you are naturally at risk from a regulatory perspective. That's real world consequence one for you as a bank and for MLROs listening, if you are SMF 17s for you as well. But the actual risk, which in terms of your, you could in theory be facilitating that PEP to launder money or embezzle or corruptly influence stuff or whatever it may be. So banks will always focus on the former because that's naturally where they need to be. And I get that. But there is a, a secondary piece as well. What if I don't do this and what's going to be the fallout of it, which is effectively allowing criminal activity to continue? And just I want to be clear, I'm not saying all PEPs are criminals by, by any stretch. In fact, probably quite the opposite. But they are naturally a higher risk type of, of individual. And you've got to manage that appropriately. And, you know, banks play a role in that. Yeah, I think you've nailed it on the head there. It's, um, there is being compliant and there's managing your inherent risk. Um, they don't always come hand in hand. But ultimately, you know, banks are expected to be compliant with whatever PEP kind of um, guidance or legislations there within your local country that you operate in. But equally, there's also the the more kind of actual inherent risks that you need to be aware of your business. So every company, regardless of their PEP exposure, are going to need to be compliant with the kind of different PEP kind of requirements you need to do. But equally, if you're offering, I know, cross-border transactions to, you know, um, high-risk countries or what we classify as high-risk countries with kind of high-risk levels of um, corruption, um, clearly you are more likely to have higher exposure to potential kind of PEPs and corrupt activities that come with it. So I think it's, you know, making sure you're thinking about the two together. And if I could just add, there's another real-world risk which we haven't mentioned, which is for a number of countries who have political elite who want to get funds, let's say, into London or the UK or wherever in more developed economies, their home countries significantly suffer as a result of what they do and the money that they take out of the economy. That's the real, real world risk that we're trying to manage. And I think everyone in the fin crime community should not forget that that is a genuine risk that we need to make sure we do not facilitate. I guess also uh, it's just uh, to join one of those kleptocrat tours that Oliver Bullough organizes here in London to That's kind of see the real grad. world consequence <laughs> and imagine like, okay, what could a country do with this money instead of buying this house in, in Belgravia? But final question. So we've talked about the uh, FCA quite a bit or the NCA. If you could ma rub a magic lamp and summon them, get them here in this room and they would answer willingly and openly like one question related to PEP. What should we ask them? <laughs> wow. Um, that's a big question. What would I ask them? I think it would be probably more focused to the NCA in terms of what are they doing to strip assets away from the political elite often the, the foreign political elite that have assets here. I totally realise the constraints that they have, and I'm not suggesting that they can do more than with what they've got in terms of resources. But as we just referenced London grad and, and whatever else you want to call it, you know, we have a lot of foreign corrupt money here. I will leave that as an open question, you know. <laughs> well, it's super interesting, obviously, with, uh, you know, Labour potentially getting in power kind of now and that certainly changes the agenda with certain kind of things in the UK in terms of what the focus is. Um, um, you know, Conservative government certainly has had different priorities with around this topic and the consequences of certain aspects of this topic. But I mean, my question was pretty simple. I'd just like to know whether they were going to look launch a PEP review and also um, the account closure information before the Chancellor actually sent them a letter to the FCA. That's what my question would be. 
Maybe we will get them on one time and they will answer. They probably hate me now. <laughs> There's always good that comes I, out of I still things. have high hopes to get like uh, both uh, FCA and NCA on the podcast. So, you know, if there's anyone from there listening, you know, please send me a message. But that brings this spin of the laundry to an end. James and Phil, thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find out more about you guys and connect with you? LinkedIn. Hmm? <laughs> LinkedIn, www.fintrail.com. I don't know. That'll do. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to go check out the back catalog and follow The Laundry on your podcast platform of choice or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please also leave a review. To get in touch with The Laundry team, you can comment on the Strides LinkedIn page or email laundry at strides.ai. Your host for this episode was me, Marit. Our producer was Matthew Dunn-Miles. Our engineers were Dominic Delargy and Andrea Busco. The Laundry is proudly produced by Strice and AML Intelligence System. Find out more about us at strice.ai. See you next time. VCS.